This is a Tech Briefs Media Group podcast. Hello and welcome to another Who's Who at NASA podcast. This month on the podcast, we had Stephen Spremo, Project Manager of COTSAT-1, or Cost Optimized Test of Spacecraft Avionics and Technologies. The ongoing development project aims to build a fully functional spacecraft for $500,000 in parts and $2 million in labor. The prototype is the first of what could be a series of rapidly produced, low-cost flight vehicles. First question here, uh, what is COTSAT-1? So, it is, the acronym stands for Cost-Optimized Test for Spacecraft Avionics and Technology. And uh, basically, we started off in 2006 working on this, and it's roughly a kind of a historical time, I would say, because in 2003 we had uh, developed the first uh, CubeSat satellite that used commercial off-the-shelf hardware, and it didn't have all the extras that a remote sensing satellite would normally have. So this was an attempt to take what we already knew about COTSAT, uh, the, the CubeSats that had already been uh, working well, and we had examples of satellites we're offering on, or, on orbit, such as GeneSat-1, take those same type, that same type of approach and grow on that and develop new technologies like star trackers, reaction wheels, uh, torque coils, um, and, and control systems, and very specific Linux-based uh, software approach that would be allowing for a modular approach. And what the, all of this construct and architecture allows is for a lower cost, um, more serviceable spacecraft that could change um, in a rapid prototype environment. And uh, so a lot of spacecraft, which I also worked on larger spacecraft such as Laddie, um, which was also considered low cost for what it was, um, you know, there's a lot of design uh, change implications. When you make when you make a change, it could cost a lot of money, depending on what phase you you, you go ahead and, and, and make the change. So COSAT was an attempt, and it was successful in, in the sense that uh, we made a, such a modular spacecraft that was more serviceable if you were compared more like an aircraft engine would be versus a satellite. So we had unique ways to take it apart, put it back together, iterate on it, um, where other spacecraft is very custom, um, one-of type systems that you can't really access and change as much. So um, the other aspect that we leveraged as a huge key point of where we were in the history or timeline of satellites is that we were benefiting from IC manufacturer technology, you know, just standard testing that was going on in the industry, and it happens at the manufacturer, so we get the failure rate of a part way, way down, so our confidence of building something around the circuit board where we use uh, commercially-based parts, um, our confidence would go way up. The other main factor here that allows for all this is we would allow uh, use a one atmosphere container to surround all the electronics. So that in itself uh, changes a lot of the design approach because you're no longer worrying about vacuum, you know, vacuum-based failures uh, as well as 
thermal extremes on the chip. So you have more, you like bringing, the example would be you're bringing the lab up to space with you. So something that would work in the lab, if you maintain the temperature and you had fans and things like that working there, it's more like operating in the space station, a mini space station, versus the satellite that is exposed to the vacuum of space. So if that makes sense. Um, so there's a lot of things about the timing and the design that we're able to leverage off that can, can make this low-cost approach work that maybe in the past was, was not possible. What are the challenges of developing this type of low-cost spacecraft? So the challenges are uh, the rapid prototyping team, so really have to have a small multidisciplinary team and uh, the project management approach too is, is such that uh, you you don't have a lot of um, time to go, I guess, have a mistake and go back and correct it. You need the right skill set all at the same time. So an example of that is, you know, you would want to have, on this is a rapid prototype team, we had 10 people, so you have somebody that has a skill set of like a mechanical engineer, but also knows uh, some other disciplines such as software or or um, you know electrical engineering, and so you combine all that, or you have somebody who knows controls, electrical engineering, um, you know, uh, and, and um, mechanical principles. You know, those those combinations of skill sets allow you to really um, advance the technology very fast. Because not only does everybody understand each other's you know, the, the engineering language that we're speaking or trying to communicate, it makes the design process go faster. But if there is attrition of the team, it's kind of a self-healing experience too. So but it also keeps the cost down because most of the cost of developing spacecraft is in the labor of the spacecraft. So it costs roughly, you know, let's just give a number, it's like, it's like a quarter million dollars in engineering a year for a very experienced with overhead and everything all built into it. If you know if you have five engineers, it's a million dollars, and you know multiple over. So these teams are about 10, 10 engineers. So you multiply that over a number of years, you're already at five million dollars in labor, and you haven't even bought any parts yet. So the whole point of Hotsat was to go very fast, have a development cycle that you could have a base platform uh, that uh, with cost optimization, uh, such that the, the team would develop uh, a base a base bus, a basic bus that could be easily changed and inspired to add in other equipment over time. So it's just robust to handle new payloads, new technologies, and the way even the way the inside is set up, it's a, a tiered system that you could go. Let's say your main computer is good for this flight, but we wanted to upgrade something else as more. Uh, 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 suitable for the next mission. We didn't have everything set up in there such that you couldn't go replace it. There was room to expand, and, and it wasn't optimized on, um, you know, the real estate of where things were placed, and if that makes any sense. So there was basically a can that was one atmosphere vessel, pressure vessel that had excess uh, calm links. It has. Uh, um, an A and a B side capability if we wanted. Uh, you could service the system, take it apart within an hour if you needed to. 
and go in and change something. If equipment was failing or doing something that wasn't expect you weren't expecting it to do in test, you could go and um, remove and replace with a, a known good unit. Um, where is on other other systems or spacecraft systems uh, that I've worked on, such as uh, Laddie and and other systems, it takes a, a, quite a bit longer to go in and make that change order and, and replace something. If it, Say a battery went bad or something. You have to spend several days taking things apart and getting it back together. And so that's that's the difference, kind of, with what we're talking about with CASAT. What did you learn from the CubeSat approach that you then applied to the development of CASAT one? So in the CubeSat approach, there was a design philosophy to always. Um, Build a robust satellite such that it had appropriate safe mode, and if it were to fail on orbit, it you know for single event upsets and latch ups and all of these these features, we on a very low cost platform we had uh, a system that was capable of going through a, uh, an on orbit event and still recovering autonomously, and that basic knowledge that that was working with the commercial off-the-shelf circuitry that we designed all the circuits around was able to be employed into the COSAT system as the backbone or the nervous system that we could count on. We picked specific chips that had radiation tolerance that uh, it, they're not, um, they're not rad hard, but they're radiation tolerant. So we could count on the system not failing to complete um, failure, that it could recover itself such that we could duty cycle systems on and off into, there's like a safe mode approach that with the low cost approach, let's say we lost a reaction wheel, we could go um, turn off turn off a system and uh, go back to basic principles from basically what we had with the CubeSats, which was kind of a lesser capability, and then um, kind of that was the home base or safe mode, and then move into these other subsystems that were higher higher um, sophistication or, or complexity, such as a star tracker or a processing computer for imagery, um, things like that, if that makes any sense. So basically, the system health and status of the system, that bus capability, was ro it was robust enough that from the CubeSats that we knew how on a cost-based platform with that, those types of chipsets or electronics or ICs that we could count on that um, to move forward to do more complex tasks but still know if we had some event happen, we'd have a safe a safe mode to go back to and reestablish the system. Does that make sense? Uh-huh. Uh, what role does open source software play in cutting costs? Uh, open source software, um, so we, we were using Linux uh, to, to uh, develop this system. And not to get too much into design detail, but with some of the tasks we're asking the satellite to do, you're tempted to go to a real-time operating system. Or in Linux, 
we were able to achieve a lot of the controls aspects and timing by going and using Linux in a soft, real-time manner that we still could process all the tasks in the modular function of the, uh, of the tasks and the processing power and speed that we could get from a commercial off-the-shelf PC-104 stack was far superior to some of the, you know, let's say a, a Laddie, we had a much older radiation-hardened processor. Well, doesn't it doesn't go, it doesn't, you know, or just let's uh, use Laddie's example in the article, but we, we use just a older style rad, rad radiation-hardened processor. Well, now with the PC-104 stack, the processing speeds are so high such that the modularity of the software now allows us uh, to process at the processing speed um, such that we don't need a real-time system any longer, that we can still achieve all of our Star Tracker, um, our Star Tracker function, getting the update rates that we're navigating correctly off the, the star field, um, uh, and, and updating in the control system such, such that we could process and still achieve our pointing requirements on the spacecraft, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. What's being done now with COTSAT-1? What's, what's, what's being done now and what's next? Okay. So uh, COTSAT-1 is, uh, the technology has been licensed. Uh, COTSAT-1 has not uh, flown to space, but the, the system still exists and it has been licensed, and there are um, some plans to potentially fly that system in the future. And what will it be designed to do when it flies? Uh, it's a technology demonstration to prove that this system in this configuration will, um, will perform to the standards that we expected it would, the pointing, the timing, um, the overall system architecture that uh, we, we believe it will, it would go in space and become what we say technical readiness level of five or six to a TRL-9 system, which means it's a proven space-based system. And we believe this system could last a number of years in, in, in space, but it, at this moment in time, no one knows for sure if there's any deficiency when it gets up in space or, or not, but we, we believe it would work. Um, but that's basically a technology demonstration would prove to community this is a viable platform for the future. And additionally, I want to mention that COTSET was developed in 2006 to 2008 timeframe where launch mass was less available, but the industry now, it appears to have an abundance of launch capability with all the new um, approach to uh, launching um, through commercial, the commercial space program. And that is a game changer where in 2008, I, it was harder for me to find a launch. Uh, now, this type of system and this size, it appears volumetrically and mass-wise, the cost has uh, started to match um, with the, the spacecraft cost. So launch cost to, um, basically, the, the launch cost could have been, you know, five, ten times the cost of the satellite uh, uh, before, and now, what would be ideal is a one-to-one -one ratio, the cost of the satellite and the cost of the launch. And that, that is something that 
2008 was not necessarily possible, but in, here in 2016, uh, roughly 10 years later, uh, um, we, we are seeing that that actually happen. So that's why cost set is becoming more low than, and lower to orbit. You might start to see instead of one or two satellites go up, you might start seeing clusters of, you know, or, or, or uh, systems, uh, constellations, constellations, right, right of 100 to 1,000 uh, satellites. Um, and to do that, they cannot cost uh, more than a couple million dollars a piece to be economically viable, in my opinion. So, mm -hmm. What is your role in the development of the COTSAB one? I was a project manager and on uh, part of the systems engineering team as well. Mm -hmm. We also call that spacecraft manager what do you think, to wrap this up, what do you think is most exciting to you about this kind of technology? Most exciting is um, the, the ability, so a lot of uh, spacecraft are specifically designed, if you look at the very the billion dollar class missions, um, there's some fundamental science need that, you know, you have a Hubble class space telescope and um, it costs a lot of a lot of money and effort and um, to, to do that space, uh, and it is an amazing um, outcome. Uh, what has not been done as much is uh, like payload proving uh, or, or payload um, technology demonstration missions uh, that may allow for underserved science. So there's thousands of ideas of what we want to go observe in space or do remote sensing with for the NASA. Uh, side of things. Well, now here's an, an underserved community. Maybe a scientist could not get a payload up before, but now I have a lower cost platform that's not a Hubble class, and now we might be serving a whole new community that was underserved before, um, as well as there may be new uh, networking technologies that from state to ground that may become uh, a viable as you have just the quantity or the N of satellites goes up for lower Earth orbit, you might start changing the community that you serve um, and allow for more discovery, more um, innovation in space. So it's basically access to space or access to a platform uh, will become more available to more scientists and more engineers um, to develop on uh, if such this platform is uh, successful. I wanted to mention that the price point of the, the target would be that the main goal would be like a half million dollar part and uh, you know roughly two three million dollars in labor per satellite would be an ideal goal mm -hmm. um, for uh, copies of the satellite and um, the whole idea would be mass producing a bot that is basically the avionics system such that it could be replicated by, not necessarily by NASA, but by a commercial entity over and over again that it's a, a lower lower cost access to space that you can have these payloads, basically what we call an ITD or interface control document or um, such that people can go very easily be confident that the bus exists 
but develop whatever payload they want to put on there to match the bus. And um, that whole story of the technology being there to serve more folks to do that is, is something with the cost, the cost aspect of um, allow for more investment in low Earth orbit um, space missions. So I also like to point out this is not meant to be uh, deep space explorer at this time, but there are ideas that uh, may lend this this concept to achieve you know things past the Van Allen belt at one point. But right now, this is really to serve the low Earth orbit communities. What the COTSAT design is for. I think I, I just want to clarify that. Sure. I'm not saying we're going to solve every problem here. I just think we're we're growing on this frontier of you know, low Earth orbit right now, and it could definitely grow beyond that.